Welcome to Science for Progress. We believe that empirical evidence and scientific understanding are essential to master the challenges of the 21st century. To advocate for the sciences and their roles in society, we are building an online community and organize live events in Portugal, where we are based. In the first few episodes of this podcast, we will introduce ourselves to you. But soon we are moving on to invite members of other groups to talk about their ambitions and projects. I am Dennis Eckmeyer, initiator of Science for Progress and host of this podcast. Today I welcome Gabriela Ferreira. I'm 22 years old. I studied biology as my bachelor degree. I actually got into it because... I was really into science when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. Science in a way where you experiment with uh, everyday life objects or in the kitchen, just little things. I was just really curious about how everything worked. What kind of things would you do? You oh, like or... I remember being a kid and you have those science fairs and you have to present a project and mm -hmm. everyone does the volcano one. And I thought it was really, really cool because to demonstrate how things work in the bigger picture was really funny in a way that it makes people wonder. It makes you wonder, oh, okay, I'm doing this on a little scale. And of course, the substances are not the same. So how is it like in a real volcano? Mm -hmm. What is happening? So so you made one of those volcanoes? Yeah, 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 yeah. I actually <laughs> made one too. It was good, but didn't last very long. <laughs> But back then you didn't live in Lisbon yet, right? No, no. I lived in France for nine years, the first nine years of my existence. Okay. And then I moved to Portugal. It was a big change, but it was good because in France I was living in Paris. Mm -hmm. So I could only have nature around me when I was in parks and it's not really the same thing. So when I got to Portugal, I started living in the countryside. I really got into farming and gardening and all the animals around me and knowing about what life around me was like, what kind of biodiversity exists. Mm -hmm. It was really, really nice, which yeah. also helped. So did, did you get one of those books that have the different animals? I had one, but I don't think it... I got it on purpose. <laughs> what? <laughs> I found you it the it? other day, actually. Um, as I was saying, I was really curious when I was a kid, but it, I, I didn't have the... Um, that insight that I was curious. It was natural. Only after studying and really knowing, well, I'm really doing this. Only after that, I started noticing that I was before and noticing that the books I had were about stuff that now I work in or study. And it was really funny. The other weekend I was at home at my parents and I found a big, big book like 800 
pages and there was a lot of information on surviving in the, in the wilderness, um, knowing the different type of plants and animals. And it was really about what you could eat, what you could use to cure yourself, everything. It was really, really, really cool to find that because I remember being a kid and reading and looking, looking at all the pictures and the drawings and I thought, wow, if one day I really need this, I have it. And it's really, really funny and really interesting, really fascinating. But you never did something like Girl Scouts? No. No. I thought about it, but I was a bit of a loner kid, so no, that didn't happen. I so, liked to discover things on my own. And then you went to do your bachelor's after school? Yeah, biology, because I was really inspired by... I only took uh, scientific classes in high school, because here you have to choose between arts, humanities and science and technology, which is... It was a little bit a little bit weird because I was always really into art and architecture and I almost got into it but I don't know I had to discover something else so it all got me into biology yeah mostly well, architecture is quite related to science right yeah uh, I'm right now doing a master's on history and philosophy of science and we have a subject which is called um, science in the city. So we studied how architecture is influenced by scientific events, by medical events, by how society is dealing with their health and their knowledge. And that has to, a lot to do with architecture, is really fascinating too. I think if we want to, almost everything has to do with science. Before we move on to part two of this episode, I have a short announcement. Science for Progress is just getting started. We are always looking for motivated new members. Do you feel that too many decisions crucial to our future are being delayed by groups who deny the evidence? Let us make a difference together. If you want to get in contact or just stay up to date with our activities, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram under at Progress. Our website is scienceforprogress.eu. I also want to point you to our new Twitter rotating curation account. Every week we invite another guest curator to tweet about the sciences and their intersections with society and governance. So if you are on Twitter and want to learn something new every week, follow at SFP Rocourt. That is at SFP R-O-C-U-R. Now let's listen to part two of our conversation, where we talk about a topic chosen by our guest. Today I'm going to talk about what my master's subject, History and Philosophy of Science, uh, relates to the way society views science nowadays. 
At the end of my bachelor's, I did a project in the National Museum of Natural History and Science here in Lisbon. And I was able to work with natural history collections. I was instantly in love with it. We were working with a collection of reptiles from São Tomé Príncipe. And at first it was really weird because when you have a snake in front of you, but it's not alive, you think, oh, I should be scared of it because it's your intuition telling you that. But after a while, you get so used to it that you think that if they were alive, it would be cool anyways because you really get used to seeing animals that in the wilderness would be really dangerous but now they're in front of you and they can hurt you and you can study them you can see how well they are preserved um, even if they were captured like one century ago usually they are in a glass jar and they are preserved in that was alcohol yeah and they still have little notes inside the jars with the name of the species but it's the name of the species when uh, the specimens were collected at that time so you get to open it and you get to change everything because uh, most of the time it's in really bad state. The alcohol in itself um, absorbs a lot of dirt, I think, from the capture and it starts to get old and it's not really good to the specimen either, so you change it usually. Then you try to read notes and try to understand what species did they think it is? After you do that, you have to identify the animal by yourself because you can't rely on old uh, taxonomy. Things change and taxonomy is always uh, evolving, so you need to verify by yourself. So I did that. We actually discovered the species and it was Trachylepis adamastor. It was a reptile collected, I think, 50 years ago, if I'm not mistaken. No, it's more like 60 or 70. But it was misidentified. It was identified as another closely related species. But now we have the ability to do a molecular analysis, to compare species between them and do the taxonomical evolution so we concluded that it wasn't the species it was supposed to be which is cool like it's like a treasure hunt you don't know you find um, a big box a big treasure and you don't know what's inside it and things that were lost a long time ago now can be new things that no one discovered before you and that is really nice but i was uh, curious so the the molecular methods that you used i didn't do I it mean, myself you... but i i know the the process there are 
different kinds of process, but usually you try to do to get to the genome sequence. Then usually you have a database. You compare to the genome of others, other to the sequences of other species. So then you know if it's it already it already exists, or if it's related or if it's a complete, completely different thing but in the end everything is kind of related more or less so it's all it's fun as you say everything is related that reminds me of a thing i heard about taxonomy that it has the problem that the different taxa are not clearly separable anymore because we we found so many animals in between the borders yeah 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 uh, in between the kingdoms like animals and plants and fungi everything is linked even if it's from very far away if they are really close and sometimes you have to have already a context in which you know what why are you uh, sequencing because if you don't know it You, you're gonna find related species anyways and you you will end up not knowing what's the difference between what you have in front of you and other animals or other plants. So that work in the museum, that project was really, really, really fascinating. I fell in love with it and It got me thinking that we don't do it just because, okay, it's interesting, you discover new stuff, but you need to have a goal. And the goal was to make uh, databases so that other scientists could uh, have the info we have. And if everything is in a database, you can do whatever you want with the characteristics of that collection. So there's a lot of work to be done. I remember a case. There was a bird and that bird was uh, close to extinction. And they had a natural history collection who had specimens of that same species from decades ago. What do we do now? We compare, uh, again, with the help of molecular biology. You're using genetic uh, methods again? Yeah, uh, not, on, not really that much genetic, although it can help with uh, what mutations occurred between the two, but The point is, we discovered that the new specimen was in contact to a lot of chemical residues from pesticides. So they knew what they had to take out of that environment. So they did. And that bird is still reproducing. It's still uh, an existing species. Did, did the population recover? It, it's fine. It's like nothing ever happened, I think. <laughs> I don't know if my sources are that correct, but it was 
the story that really got me into why do why are we doing this besides oh it's so much fun it's so much it's so interesting it really helps it has a bigger goal and that was always something that fascinated me because I never really understood what I was here to do. I I what think do you mean with here? on Earth, on Earth. Like, alive. Oh. I think we all think about it at some point. And I never really reached a conclusion because I don't feel I I don't feel I have to. But I feel like I want to spend that time doing something that is bigger than me. Doing something that is not only important to me, but important to things I can't control. Important to nature, important to things that I think that are good. So, yeah, it has that perspective too. And it was a work that really inspired me to go into my master's. That's what I was about to ask. I oh, okay. Mean, you were uh, you were saying that you love working with animals, and I was thinking, why didn't she go into zoology or herpetology? Um, I was actually you... more into botany, to be honest. <laughs> But I'm yeah, 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 it's the same. Because you're talking about the reptiles. And, and then I thought, oh, maybe she wants to go into preservation or conservation. I thought about into it. Conservation. I thought about so, it. So why did you go into... The history and philosophy of science instead. I think there are a lot of things that are misunderstood. Not on purpose, not because we don't have the knowledge or not because it's our fault. There are a lot of things that we don't understand because science has a big, big history and a bigger even side, a, f a philosophical side. And by understanding it, I think that we can reach more than just by uh, the, pra the practical stuff. If you keep on studying history of science, if, if someone is there to compare things, to reach out for old things, to, in, uh, to research information. You can get in contact with people that are doing research and all that knowledge it's, is symbiotic and it's like the bird collection thing. We have it because biologists collected that specimen years ago so we have to have the practical part but we also have to have the people who study the collections by themselves the people who keep the collections the institutions like museums and universities so that we can access more knowledge we saved a species just by that archived knowledge Not only by practical, because practical doesn't really have a timeline. Practical is in the now, and sometimes you need to go back to the past. Sometimes you need to rethink things. And history really helps that. Because we study history, but it, it's more about how people thought about science, how people 
got into ideas, scientific ideas, how scientific revolutions happened. And that still tells a lot about today. So I think we have to have this field. Science exists for around 300 years, a little bit more. Is that right? What do you mean by science? Because you, you mean modern science? Modern science. Okay. Because for me, science is not really what we do. Uh, that's what I was saying when I was saying that I used to like scientific stuff when I was a kid. It's not really science if you consider the modern definition of science. But I'm really into what was science before now? Before the Enlightenment. I mean, you have yeah, the yeah, 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 yeah. I really like metaphysics, mm -hmm. for example. Uh, the the natural philosophy is something that I think a lot of things are still up to date. Yesterday, I was making a presentation on Aristotle's biology, and I was really surprised when I found myself thinking, "Oh, what he's what he's saying is." still contemporary for example he <laughs> he he had a problem that was uh how to divide animals into kinds what differentiates an animal and what he says is that every animal uh has functions those functions and parts of its body constitutes his, its soul So uh, it's not our definition of soul. An animal is as a soul by itself. The soul is the is the those functions and everything that the animal is mixed all together. So um, would a modern uh, translation be its nature? Yeah, its nature, maybe. Yeah, yeah, that could be a good translation. Yes. To differentiate between souls is to differentiate between essences. It talks about essence like it's what differentiates us from birds. Again, birds. <laughs> I'm really into birds today. Uh, birds have wings because the sole function of the wing is to fly. And to fly is a way of life of the bird. So it is a soul function because it really needs it. We don't. In that way, the essence of the bird is different from our essence because we don't need to fly. So, so what's the difference between essence and the soul, soul. or nature? Essence differenti differentiates you between kinds. That was his problem, to put animals into kinds. So, if we're talking about the sole function of having a heart that makes your blood run, you can say that we're in the same kind as a bird. It could be also the same essence if you're only talking about the heart. But if you're talking about specific soul functions, like those you need for your way of life, like flying and having wings, your essence is not the same as the essence of the bird. It's your essence that puts you in another box. And I thought that 
still today, if you think about it, it's logical. It it applies. Yeah. So how would that translate into phylogeny, into modern phylogeny? If you would say the same problems that he had. It's what I said earlier. Everything is related more or less by a bigger or smaller degree. That's what Aristotle did, uh, says. Every bird and all its relatives have wings. Right? Yeah. So that would be a phylogenetic genetic trait that we today use. Yes. And yes. The same uh, way you could put everything. Yeah, I think today we have like we have molecular biology, we have genetic genetics, <laughs> genetics. And you can understand deeper what the differences are between species. But if you want to talk in a simpler way, not doing analysis, not researching that deeply, it still applies. It still applies. You have your different kinds. You have the animals, you have the plants. And... Uh, in those, you have the the families and you have all the ways animals are related to each other and have features that are the same, but in some degree, sometimes they differ. So, yeah, it's I think it's still very contemporary, which is very interesting because... Aristotle is one of the first natural f uh, philosophers we have. But you wouldn't say he got everything right from the start. No, no, no. Not him, not anyone else, not even today. I don't think anyone has had anything anything completely right. But that's that's also the fun part of it. We we are all together trying to work to try to understand better what is around us and in the history and philosophy of science we also we we take all that info and we try to understand it so we can understand what is happening today what needs to happen in the future what could happen to make things better now and uh, for example bioethics Bioethics is really, really important, and is it's really a big debate right now. Because so, what are the big topics in bioethics right now? Animal cruelty, the use of animals in science. I think a topic that is very big, but people don't really think about it that way, is our diets. Again, animal cruelty, because it fits in the same box. But people are really talking about veganism, like it's a trend. But it's a really bio—it's it's a bio bioethical problem, actually. There's been a lot of talk about gene therapy, CRISPR technology. The CRISPR technology, yeah. exactly. I mean, there are other technologies. Yeah, yeah, but that it. one is always in the. Um, The headlines, I don't know why. Because it's very cheap to use. Okay. It's, it's, it's very specific. Okay. And it's very reliable. I actually took uh, genetic engineering in college, but 
never really did much more about it after. But I thought it was really interesting. I'm all for it, actually. I think it's something that really needs to have rules. We have to be sure about what we're doing the most sure possible it's something that really needs to be verified we have to do a complete study we have to know what we're talking about to so, do so, it but it's um, good so what it's a bioethics problem? problem yeah right. but why why what is why because imagine you, you're gonna join pieces of two sequences together from different animals i don't know or di different bacteria at first the first problem is We're like playing God a little, a little bit. That's a big issue. We don't know if, if we have the right to change something as it was naturally. But that also, we could also talk about that like in medicine and stuff like that. So we can't actually so, so argue you that. Mean, you mean, uh, when you say we can talk about it in medicine that the act of fighting a disease might already be an ethical problem? If you think about it, you are changing the, the way things are, things are naturally, you know? And I don't think it's it constitutes as a problem in a negative way. It is a problem just because it brings a lot of different things to talk about. Do we have the right to do this? Is it better if we do it or is it better if we don't? But then again, I'm all for it. When I'm sick, I'm, I go to the doctor. So uh, it's, it's a really complicated topic. So after uh, that problem, if you alter something that is already have, you also have the problem of mutations and of transmitting features from one sequence to another that you don't want. And sometimes that can bring problems. It already brought problems. I think... So what are you talking about right now? Are you talking about creating bacteria or, or fungi? No, 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 no. Only using... things? Or are you talking about... No, no, that's, GMOs, that's easier. Or are you also GMOs. Maybe GMOs, but also the use of uh, genetic engineering in healthcare. Gene therapy already brought some problems and it's something that needs to be discussed before. It's not like GM. I think we also have to be careful about GMOs. I'm also all for it. I don't know why, why there's this big, big nightmare that GMOs are bad. and I, It's something that is really misunderstood, which is also something that I like about this project, Science for Progress, because if people get into science a little bit more, if science is not the big, scary thing people can understand that some things that are mediatized as really awful maybe they're, they're not that awful why do we say i i ask some of my friends or uh people that i know or family why are you against gmos and they're 
oh, it's so bad, it's so bad for you, it's so bad for the environment, it's so bad. But why are you saying it? Why, how do you know? Oh, because I saw it on TV and it was really awful and I don't want to be sick. And those people also eat something, uh, some things that are full of pesticides and they don't know it because no one talks about it. It doesn't bring any money. So there has to be a connection between society and science so that everyone can speak the same language and everyone can agree and disagree more on things without being influenced. And yeah, genetic engineering is something that... So what are the good things about it and what are the bad things about it? There are a lot of uses. If done right, you can cure diseases, you can cure um, like they did with the rice that... Um, there was a, defici a deficiency on uh, vitamin A. I can't remember really where. But they modified the rice so that it could bring more uh, of that uh, nut nutrient to the, um, to the people. Because they didn't have access to the pills like we do. They, they were really poor. It was a poor, poor country in that way and rice is really cheap it's really easy to produce and they have a lot of it so that solved the problem actually so we have a lot of ways in which it can be really good that's the golden rice right that's i what think it's yeah 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 because yeah. it changes color a little bit yeah i think so yeah so i think i think it's good but it needs to be discussed and that's what I'm really into regarding bioethics and regarding the history and philosophy of science too. Because it's all mixed together. We discuss things, we discuss how they are, how they could be, how they should be sometimes, what is best for the environment, what is best for us, because there are also um, a lot of subjects that are centered on the humankind. People need to stop being afraid of science. We need to learn more. We need to encourage knowledge in people, curiosity in people. And that's what I'm trying to do with my studies and with this project, I'm learning a lot, in, especially in history. And I find out that science is not as objective as we think it is. Oh, how is that? <laughs> we, ha we have a very, maybe, Kantian way of thinking, that every knowledge is very empirical, we only... Science is what is for sure. One plus one equals two. But that brings a, a lot of thinking. That brings... A, because we are born and we study and we learn that science is the most certain thing you will encounter. That's why everyone agrees that... When you need to know about something, it needs to be 
as scientific research. But actually, on the course of centuries and centuries of making science in a lot of different ways, humankind was always very, very influenced by emotions, by their own subjectivity. And science is something that is more mutable. Science is something that can suffer more mutations than what we think it can. What do you mean with mutations? For example, uh, in a hundred year, in a, <laughs> in the hundred years, what you think is certain and a theory that is uh, applied today can be completely completely ridiculous. In that way, science is more subjective and no one really thinks about it that way. I didn't thought about it that way before getting in my ma into my master's. But I don't think it's something that is bad. I think it's good. Um, another goal of my master's, understanding why it's good and why we should let that subjectivity coexist with science. I always thought that at least scientists themselves are quite aware of that and that you have sometimes centuries of repeated experimentation and trying to, uh, to apply the mm -hmm. theory and only if it has been applied a lot of times then you, you call it a theory. Everything before that yeah, is preliminary. Yeah, and you have so the, stati the statistics too. Everything is not as like, def definitive as it was before, but I think it still it still hasn't reached that point where we accept that things can change. There, I think there's a lot of resisting to change. So, the way I think about it, the the reason why scientists are somewhat conservative is to make it harder to change the current viewpoint maybe Because i don't then know. You know then you need better evidence you don't want to replace a good theory with a weaker one that, you need to replace that, that it with is a an much, interesting yeah with a much better one so you want to be very um conservative and always ask for the best evidence yeah yeah we, we we try to be really i remember i did some research and we try to be as harsh with our evidence as we can and with our statistic but i don't think it works that way right? for everyone i think there are some issues in the academic world regarding that But I, I'm not going to say per se, like specifically, uh, who who has problems and what are those problems. It's also subjective no to yeah yeah no, <laughs> I can't even think about someone specifically if I wanted to. But I have that notion. Sometimes we should be more certain. We, sh we should be more demanding with our uh, evidence. But it's not a bad fear, as you put it. It's a good 
resistance, I don't think people really realize it when people yeah. hear about science. Because they use science like like we use mathematics. And like we use the dictionary. Yeah. And some things change and we have to be more open. That that's what that's what this master made me do and what I'm trying to get out of it is to make science more approachable and to people to be more open about all the possibilities because it's all so interesting. There's so much to discover yet, uh, still. So that's all true. Uh, work, uh, science is a work in progress. Basically. Yeah, always, always, always. And you will always have people who like their ideas more yeah. and will try to suppress. But other I like ideas. it. I like the fact that it's a never-ending yeah. thing. It's, a long it, it's an activity. Counts, right? It's we we. I don't know. Before that, I used to think that science would reach an end where we know everything. But I think it's so boring. I think we are always evolving and always discovering new things and yeah. as the humankind evolves science evolves too we have to bring the, that notion to life oh i'm pretty sure in our lifetimes we won't run out of science yeah that's that's good <laughs> yeah. I, i'm very comfortable with that idea <laughs> yeah so so it's more the long game and there are very few theories that are successful across the long game and I'm talking yeah. about centuries yeah. and some of them are I mean what we will always learn in high school forever on I'm pretty sure is uh, Newton's laws for example mm -hmm. uh, evolution is one of the most proven theories yeah but even Darwin has been um, revised Yeah, 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 a lot, a lot of that's times. True. Yeah, yeah. yeah, that's true. That so must, I the, think that's, the, the that's good. Principle, the principle is still true. Yeah. There are a lot of predictions he, he made yeah. that had to be uh, changed, but uh, his, the, the, fun, yeah, the, the fundamental yeah, idea yeah. is still true. And one, and I hear that people say, I'm, I'm not a quantum physicist, but people say that quantum physics has the best predictive power. So you can really calculate what will happen in quantum space. I don't know uh, how much that helps us in everyday life, but <laughs> I, I'm pretty sure. So I know that some technologies rely on that, like uh, um, like satellite technology, things like that. Yeah. And I don't know, so, maybe someday we'll have enough knowledge to for it to be more a part of our everyday lives. I think some science, some, uh, some subjects of science are, I don't want to say more advanced than we are, but sometimes we discover things and we don't know their meaning. And that is an, uh, that is happening in a lot of fields. Quantum, quantum physics in, is one of them. And maybe someday we'll understand, which is fun. It's always interesting. Yeah. Yeah, what I like about it is that we have all this math and it works for quantum physics. But a lot of people say if you think you understood quantum physics, then you haven't understood quantum yeah, physics. Yeah, because <laughs> it's all so 
complicated. I, yeah. I personally have no clue, to be um, honest. I also know <laughs> only secondary. But I, I think it's, it's interesting, the whole concept and what it brings. But you were talking about... Yeah, w what you liked about all of this and that the theories, even though some are still uh, agreed on, uh, some of them uh, were revised and some of them changed completely and was were proven wrong. I remember something that I'm actually studying right now and that I think is really interesting because we have the concept of scientific revolutions like between Copernicus and Aristotle if you accept that the earth is in the middle of it or if the sun is in the middle and I actually I'm actually studying it a little bit deeper And I found out that there are so many people involved in that story that it's not how we learn in, we learn it in school. It's completely, it's more progressive. It, it's, it's, uh, its changes happened little by little and were influenced by a lot of different individuals and We like to study st uh, to study science, like there were some big heroes and they are so misunderstood during their lives and then they finally uh, think about something and they're right and everyone adores them even though they already died. <laughs> But that, uh, that brings a little bit of that big, scary science image we, uh, people have. Uh, so I think that if we understood that sometimes it's not as revolutionary as we think and it was a work in progress and there were a lot of people involved and ideas change by little bits and not by, oh, we were totally wrong before and now we know, science would be more friendly. Science would be more friendly, I think. And people wouldn't be so scared. Because now I, I, I have that perspective. Copernicus was helped by many people. Many people before him developed theories, developed, developed instruments that helped him on his own theory. I, th I think that all makes a part of it. It's not, it's not like no one knows anything and then Copernicus appears and he discovers everything on his own that's completely ridiculous and that's really 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 cool I think yeah. so this is actually a thing that even within science a lot of people uh, focus really on the one person just look at Nobel prizes yeah it's so so exaggerated Yeah, I think it has to do a lot with storytelling, maybe. Yeah, yeah, that's what I'm also learning about in history and historiography. It's that the way people write and tell the history of science influences a lot about our knowledge of science. And that's a really... It can be dangerous, I think. But... 
that also depends on what perspectives of history you're writing. But I think that's also the why we have a lot of people writing about a lot of different things. You have to have different points of view and you have to draw conclusions by yourself. And mine is that every little thing counts and I see scientific knowledge as a collective of knowledge by a community that is bigger than heroes, bigger than scientists, bigger than bigger than everything. Everything is a part of it, I think. It's everywhere. But is it just a collection of knowledge? Because other people say it's a method. I mean, we were talking about things that we already knew. So in that sense, it is a collection of knowledge. If we take what we have right now, but if we take what we are doing, yeah, it, it's a method. But that method can also be subjective. I'm also studying that um, we have methods that don't include everything that is in the scientific, uh, scientific method per se. There are a lot of methods that maybe could be scientific, but we don't consider them as that because they don't have all those little points of the scientific method as it is accepted today. I had a pro I have a professor that in the first class asked us, is alchemy a science? And I was like, yeah. And everyone, no, how can you say that? And I said, yeah, okay. It's not accepted as a science in Yeah, if we're taking in account the um, the modern point of view, the modern scientific the uh, scientific method, it's not. But once it was considered science because you had nothing else better, and it had its own method, and it was a way of understanding things. And I think that by itself can be a little scientific, mm -hmm. you know. So it all depends on the concepts you have not really on what it is okay our time is up and with this we end today's episode i hope you enjoyed our conversation and are taking a new thought with you if you want to hear more from us follow us on facebook twitter and instagram under at sci4progress and check out our website scienceforprogress.eu The new rotating curation account on Twitter that I talked about before will become active on Tuesday, March 13th, and it's called at SFPROCUR. That is at SFPROCUR. Oh, God, I don't know everything.